Um, we are in, uh, entering into a series. Uh, we started last week this summer called Summer Rest. Really simple. And we're rooting this series in the Psalms. And we're using rest as a pretty broad umbrella to talk about everything from emotional health and mental health. To talk about Jesus' invitations to us, the peace that surpasses all understanding. We don't have a whole lot in our anxiety-ridden, highly polarized, uh, just really difficult world in general and always, but especially in this moment. If we are not people full of joy and rooted in rest, not, not people who are striving and grasping for a little bit of rest in the midst of the exhaustion of our age, but we are actually entering into the world serving and loving and laying down our life from a place of rest. You've heard this distinction many times before. We can work for rest or from it. And as followers of Jesus, as people who believe the good news that Jesus is king, that we have been saved by grace, that we are loved right where we are at, and that we get to join God in the work of renewal, that we are people who don't strive for it thanks to grace. We work from it. We recognize who we are and whose we are. And from that point, we move out. And so today, I want to invite us to look at Psalm 91. And so first, I want us to read uh, this new liturgy together to kind of position our hearts, ready to receive the word. And then we're going to read Psalm 91. So if you'd stand one last time with me. As we open our Bibles, we also open our hearts, that these words of truth may fall upon the very fabric of our lives. May these ancient scriptures come alive within us to inspire, to heal, to cleanse, to teach, to restore, and to guide our hearts and minds. Lord, come weave your words of life in us. May we all feel safe with each other, safe to think and question, safe to ask for help, and safe to share our lives with you, our loving Heavenly Father. Amen. If you'd remain standing. For the reading of the words, Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. That midday plague is uh, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you take the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show the way of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a psalm of protection. And it is commonly 
as you can imagine, invoked in times of great hardship. There's no author that's mentioned in the Hebrew text. Um, the Jewish tradition ascribes this to Moses being written during the 40 days in the wilderness. There's a lot of signs of this, but we aren't quite sure. The promise of this psalm is pretty simple. God will be your safety. will keep you safe. And my immediate question when I read this, and it should be probably like the light should be going off on your dashboard as you go through this, as we're just singing about the great promises of God and what God can do and does do, is how do we understand the promise of peace, of rest, of safety, of care that reside in this psalm? How do we understand this promise? And I want to invite you to consider that the key is in verse 15, which is simply, I will be with you in trouble. I will be with you in trouble. The promises so often of God, they get distorted and diluted. I can actually tell you uh, what a distorted reading of this psalm and of these promises here look like. How the evil one maybe would want you to read and understand this promise. And so I want to do this by going through a couple other passages. Right, when we look at Scripture and we see a set of promises or we see an expectation that we should have of God or something that God has done, we begin to look at the whole breadth of the story. We get into a lot of trouble when we just try to pull one piece out and treat it as sort of a life-guiding principle in and of itself. So if you were going to, right, if there's truth to this, that we get deceived sometimes about what the promises of God actually are, what they actually mean, how we should apply them, how they make sense to our life today, how might a promise like this, like God will keep you safe, how might this actually get distorted, especially as many of us feel unsafe, not at rest, not at peace, and don't feel protected? Luke 4, 9. We read, uh, this is, by the way, this is Jesus. He is being tempted by the evil one, by the deceiver. And he cites this psalm that we just read, Psalm 91. So we have the devil citing scripture. Devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had Jesus stand on the highest point of the temple. And then he says, if you are the son of God, if you really are who you say you are, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stones. So this is quoting Psalm 91. What are the messages being conveyed to Jesus here? What is the deception or what is the temptation coming at him? Right, first it's like, don't, you don't have to go to the cross. Don't suffer. Show these people how untouchable you are, right? This is like your YouTube moment. Like you can go viral with this one. Climb up on a temple mount, throw yourself off, watch the angels come. If God really, if the Father really loved you, he will deliver you from all the pain and the anguish that was coming your way because Jesus knows where the story ends. This is a brilliant strategy. The deceiver, if the devil can get you to believe that if I believe in God, nothing bad will happen to me. If you believe that, then when bad things come, you will pull back from God because you're going to say, look, that promise didn't work. 
look, that promise didn't actually, no, he's not. It's cute that you guys believe these things, but like it doesn't actually work. Well, if the devil can get you to believe that, then, then that's probably where that ends. The deception is to think that God's promises have failed if he lets us suffer. Maybe you've actually believed that or believing that today. But there's more to this promise. Turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 50, verse 20. Here we meet Joseph. Joseph was accused, enslaved, falsely convicted, and he comes to the end of his life. And in this epic and dramatic scene, like total twist. I don't know why no one has made like a, a blockbuster movie about Joseph. He's facing his brothers who did all this to him. His brothers who threw him in a pit, who made sure his life was going to go horrible. He's facing them. And he says, look, you meant all of this. All these things that you did to me that have led to a very, very difficult life. You meant it for evil. All the heartache and all the pain. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But God meant it for good. What's Joseph saying? God brought something beautiful out of all the pain, out of all these circumstances. And he's saying more than that. If I hadn't gone through all of this, I wouldn't have become prime minister, saved a nation from famine, even rescued my dysfunctional family. Joseph was this spoiled kid headed in the wrong direction. You guys meant all this for evil, but God took this and turned a spoiled kid and made him king and made him a healer. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. One way you could understand this maybe would be this. God was keeping him safe when he was sold into slavery. God was keeping him safe. Remember the Psalm, Psalm 91, I will be with you in trouble. I will be with you in it. Turn with me to Romans 8, 28. A classic, if there ever was one. God works all things together for, for good, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, who were like agreed together. By the way, there's been a few places already in these verses, if you're new to the scripture, where you're like, I thought God was all about grace. And we're reading like, if you really love me, right, like this will happen. Or if you're aligned with me or those that like call on my name or fear me, this is always just about alignment. Jesus is the one, right? He says, if you really love me, you'll do what I say. Because we get it twisted like love and mercy and grace all have to do with like some sort of intellectual alignment. Try that with your spouse. Say that you love them all of the time and be like the most like just someone who doesn't listen to them, doesn't hear them, is constantly pushing back and is a pretty miserable person to live with. And see if that sentiment of I love you translates in any type of way. In other words, you will, you are what you do. You want me to preach that sermon now? I feel like I'm supposed to preach that sermon now. <laughs> God works all things together for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. This isn't about finding a silver lining, just to be really clear. People get like allergic to this verse because people throw it on like a card when someone's grieving, but it actually really is beautiful, and I actually think that's the most appropriate place for it, even if it feels sometimes a little tone deaf when it comes through. And part of that is because we're like, look on the bright side, and it's not that, because let's be really clear. 
Some things are just really, really bad. No one ever wants to amen that one, but it's true, right? Amen. Some things, yeah, some things are bad. Paul is reminding us of something so critical that those who are aligned with Christ, you will see God working in and through the hardships and in the uncertainty and in the pain and all of it for an ultimate future good. He is actually not doing any sort of silver lining thing. Paul He's constantly writing from prison and shipwrecked. And we know a lot about, right, the story of Paul who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. He is looking at the ache and pain and he's constantly considering it good. He's not saying it's good. He's like, this man will produce endurance in me. This will shape me. We have many times where Paul is weeping, literally in Scripture. Paul is not, like, emotionally disconnected. He's not just like the bros. Like, it's all good all the time. He's like, no, this is horrible. This is the worst. This hurts more than anything. And in the wake of all of that, I actually trust God to handle the brokenness and ache. I trust him to be a refuge. I trust him to renew this. And you can do two things at the same time. Amen. Psalm 91, I will be with you in trouble. All right, one more. Luke 21, verses 16 to 18. This is not a classic. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. <laughs> Everyone will hate you because of me. Awesome. This is Jesus, by the way. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. What does that mean? By your endurance, you will gain your life. Another translation says this. This might be helpful in verse 19. Stand firm. Stand firm and you'll win your life. Stand firm in the faith. Trust. Apparently, you will experience hardship and you will be in some way safe. You can hear the echo of the psalm again. I will be with you in trouble. Trouble is going to come. I have laid before humanity the choice of life and death because I'm a God of love and it so often chooses death. And so even in its choosing of death, I have come. Jesus has come, made a way and rescued and saved and built a bridge and whatever analogy you want to use and picture you want to use, cleared the debt. He's come after us, and he says, you will have trouble in this world. You guys have jacked this up. I love you, and I'm coming for you. And there is safety and rest and rescue and refuge in me. See, if you live for anything more than God, if there is anything in your life more important than God, you aren't safe. You aren't safe circumstances can take it all away. I can say it like this. If a child, if your children are the most important thing in your heart, I know everybody who's peers a follower of Jesus is like, no, obviously God's the most important thing. I'm talking about the like real life. <laughs> like those day-to-day -day moments. Those if you love me, you'll do what I say moments. The child is the end-all, be-all, right? We, we, we know that it is really easy in our culture to make an idol out of your kids. If a dream that you have and a calling is the most important thing to you, if there's a plan and a scheme 
of how you're going to climb the ladder or move into that house or make that scenario happen. If these things are most important, if these things, another way to say it would be if these things are ultimate things in your life. And don't just brush this off. Like, consider, where are the things that are, like, are creeping into that ultimate category at the top? If they are what your life revolves around, and then those things, that child, that dream, that calling, they disappear or they get jacked up. And to be clear, they will. You essentially don't have much of a self left. Are you tracking with me? Can you see how this happens? If something like that becomes the ultimate thing and it gets pulled away, how it leaves you as less of, of less of a person. If we stop looking for things other than God to bring us deep soul rest and joy, we can endure the trials of everyday life and then experience that peace that surpasses right, all understanding. Again, tired verse, man, that is tired for a reason. Because it says so much, so much about the kind of life that we can live. A peace, to be clear, that does not make sense. That it like goes beyond. You ever had someone like come up to you or know somebody who's a father of Jesus come up to them like, how are you so at rest? How are you so full of joy all the time? You have those people that you've gone and asked that question of. To be really clear here, this isn't about um, loving your kids like less or your job less. This is simply about loving God more. About having a proper perspective of life. We've talked a lot in our community, right, about the power of, of like rehearsing your death. Right? Some of you have the great pain and also gift of knowing like the imminence of death. It does something. It snaps you into perspective. It aligns you in such a way with what's most important. When you come to the end of your life, you're filled with great joy and rest or you're filled with utter regret. And so we have to do this like time traveling thing where we remember the end so that we might live our life with what David Brooks called eulogy values. The kinds of things we want said at our funeral, the kind of things we want rehearsing at our, on our deathbed, not regret, but like a life well lived, aligned with God. And so whether your life feels like the simplest of things in our culture, a simple job and a quiet life, raising family, or it has some sort of larger, more public scope, both are equal in the kingdom of God and both matter and every good and beautiful deed goes on in God's good kingdom when our hearts are aligned and submitted to Jesus as king of all kings. It changes everything. Days are well lived and weeks are well lived and months are well lived when everything gets submitted to God. If we don't do this, the career will take over your soul. Your own family will possess your soul and that will eat you alive. Those things are not meant to bear the weight of contentment in your soul. This is what I tell every single couple that Cora and I get to marry. If you are getting everything that you need or think you're going to get everything you, you need out of looking at one another, man, 
not going to happen. He's going to get ugly. She's going to get a little mean sometimes. And honestly, even, (laughs) I don't know why I chose those two things. Even if, man, even if everything's like pretty much smooth sailing. I know some people have had some pretty smooth sailing in their marriage. Like for most of their life together. They're lying to themselves. No, it's kidding. Now you've had some real smooth sailing. But man, you can live such a dulled life if it's like, if, if, if we're not good, then I'm not like, I'm not good. And that can't be the way we live our life. Those things aren't meant to carry the weight of your soul. But if God's our ultimate hope, that means we are in a very real way safe. So back to Psalm 91. It's not, I will protect you from all trouble, but you will be safe through all trouble. So I close with this. I was drawn uh, to this image of a mother bird covering her children. It's actually an image that Jesus uses um, in two different places, one in Matthew 23 and one in Luke 13. We read, Jerusalem You who will kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. The same image is found in the psalm. Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. The mother, the mother is a substitute here, right? The mother is laying down her life. If there is heat coming down, the mother gets the heat. If there's rain and wind, mother is getting pelted. If there is a predator coming to attack, mom is getting, like, chewed up. If core, I mean, like, this imagery that Jesus uses, employing this mother language to the Savior of the world, is really, really helpful in us seeing the great, like, character and love and beauty of who God is. And, of course, there's this second metaphor. There is a fortress filled with shields and ramparts. The fortress has these walls of strength, walls where spears and arrows won't make a dent. And then there's the mother bird sheltering with wings that are essentially fragile. You've got these two images, strength, impervious strength, and then sacrificial loving weakness. And apparently these images come together in God. And we see this most clearly where? Yeah, we see it in Jesus and we see it at the cross. It's on the cross where we see the absolute righteous power and the tender sacrificial love of God come together. We're getting the power of the castle wall and we're getting mother bird covering us. Jesus on the cross took what you and I deserve for our sin so that you can know you can know and trust you aren't being punished for your sin 
He conquered death, giving us a glimpse of what the future for all of us will look like. You are safe in the loving arms of the father. Or in this case, the loving arms of the mother in the metaphor that Jesus gives us. And so my hope simply today, this is the end of the sermon. My hope is that this induces some rest. A peace that comes from the assurance of being covered in the sacrificial love of Christ. (laughs) See, there's mother caring for baby. You could wrap maybe all of this up with that old hymn that we sing at Easter. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all what? All fear is gone. And because I know he what? Holds the future. Amen. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Psalm 91, I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. My God in whom I trust. So can you say this to the Lord as we come to the communion table? Can we say this to the Lord that you can trust him? This is a call to faith. This is a call to trust. This is a call to chill the freak out. I hope that isn't insensitive. It's a call to deep faith. Faith and trust that you are safe and cared for and loved at the depth of your being and he is with you in the trouble. And the first question when you sense some sort of absence in the pain and grief and ache of this world, the first question shouldn't be, where is God? The first question should always be, where are you? Where are you? Are you drawing near to the heart of the Father? Are you remembering and recalling and walking in intimacy with the Father? God is close to the brokenhearted. If we can trust that, are we willing to turn to him? This is a call to rest. That this season in our church, these next five weeks or so, would be ones where we are cultivating every Sunday morning when we come together, every time we gather in our home church. Every time we gather with our family or our like our little crews, we are cultivating a deeper and deeper faith and deeper and deeper trust. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Lord, thank you that you're faithful. Faithful to comfort us in times of need. That you are um, the one who invites us to breathe in. You are our shepherd and breathe out. I have all that I need. Lord, I thank you that you weep and cry along with us. It has been said, Lord, that the cross is you. You um, 
screaming alongside us. It was like the very first me too statement of any power. It's like, yeah, me too. I know what that is. I know what that is to experience that ache and heartache and that temptation we're told in Hebrew and that just the full weight of the world and that we can both rest in that reality but more so rest in the reality that you have conquered it all. And there is an assurance of peace and a joy that surpasses all understanding. So Lord, we come to the table. We come to the table to take the bread and the cup and remember the cross, Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for us. The greatest act of love that the world has ever seen the kind of love that gets us out of bed in the morning. The kind of love that allows us to lay down our life even when things are hard for us. The sort of love that invites us to rest and stop striving and stop trying to climb the ladder constantly and be at peace and rest in the joy that you are his. The greatest, greatest love. And we take that bread and we remember the scene of Jesus with the disciples every week and he's gathered with them. He says, this, this, this bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat this meal. Take this bread and remember what I've done. I'll change everything. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. This new world going to open up before you, the kingdom of God. This new way that we will relate to one another. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember what I've done. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim my death until I come again. It's like the future races into the present as we take the bread and the cup. So, Lord, I pray for healing and freedom and rest and new joy and new contentment as we come down the aisle, as we process like a bride, the bride of the church to the front, to the groom, to you, Lord. I ask Holy Spirit as we sing of resting in your loving arms, God, that you'd move, that we would be open. I was telling the team before you come forward this morning in our rally, um, I kept having this image all morning of like an aerated lawn. You know, the, the little holes that get punched into the lawn. And I just kept imagining all of these holes, right, when you aerate your lawn and then there's like a rain that comes. And it's like you break, or, or maybe the image from like Hosea, like breaking up the soil so that it can receive the nutrients. And it's had this image that like this moment right here might be that for, for some of us. Maybe even for those of us who've never said yes to Jesus. He's extending that invitation. You can be saved and redeemed and known and welcomed into the family in a moment. Just to say, yes, Lord, I trust that you are king, that you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again. And so maybe that's this moment for you to say yes in your heart and to come down the aisle and for the first time take this bread and cup in a manner that is like for real. By the way, if that's you, 
don't like race off, like go and talk to someone. Like someone wants to pray with you in the corner. Come to the next steps bar and find us. So would you stand with me? We, Lord, in this moment of processing down the aisle, will say to you, you are our refuge and our fortress. In you, Lord, we trust. Increase our faith, our hope, our rest. Church, come. You can come up right the center aisle, take the bread, dip it in the cup. You will hear Christ's body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. And you can just respond with amen or thanks be to God. If you'd like to receive prayer, there are people over in the corner who would love to pray for you. Or if you'd like to stay at the altar, come forward, take communion, and then sit back on this pew. And as the line clears out, you can just linger here. And people would love to come and bless and pray for you. So come.